The title of our message today is Jesus, the Promised One, and we want to see the promises in the Old Testament that foretold the Savior, what he was going to be like, and what he was going to do. Listen to the words of the shepherds to, uh, uh, in Bethlehem, as an angel appeared to them and told them they were going to find the Messiah in Bethlehem. It says in Luke 2, 9 and 11, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. The child who was born was for all people, not just for Jewish people, not just for Christians, but for all people. He was born for you, no matter what the circumstances are in your life and no matter who you are. Today is born to all people. For there is born to you, it goes on in verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. So he was born for all, and he was born for you. Now the Old Testament tells us this beforehand, and this is miraculous. We're going to talk some about prophecy today. And men can't tell the future. Now I, I actually, I shouldn't say that. I can tell the future. I'm going to give you prophecy right now. Are you ready? And you can tell whether or not I'm a false prophet. Next year, 2023, it's going to rain in Tucson, Arizona. Now, that's prophecy. And it's going to come true. But the more exact I get with my prophecies, the more you can tell whether or not I'm really a prophet. If I tell you we're going to have a VIP, a, a, a world VIP, visit Tucson next year. And when he visits, we're going to have the worst storm that we're going to have that year. There's going to be several people who die in Tucson and he's going to be severely injured, but he's going to live and there will be a world-shaking event that will happen because of his near-death experience. And then that comes to pass. It, I just told you it was going to happen and it happens next year. You're going to go, what, what, what does Robert know? Is he indeed a prophet? Because I gave you details. The Bible gives details in its prophecies. There is a prophecy in Ezekiel written 600 years before the time of Christ that the city of Tyre was going to be scraped clean and thrown into the sea. This is in Ezekiel. It's in our scriptures. And the city of Tyre, you need to know, was a significant city. It was a large port city of their day. Trade came in and out of the city of Tyre. So this was an unlikely prophecy. It would be like saying that the city of of um, New York is going to be scraped off and cast in the sea. Maybe not quite that radical because it wasn't that big, but it was a big city for their day. Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had marched on the city, and when they, they did, they abandoned the city, and they went to an island that was about a quarter of a mile out from the shore, and it had fortress walls. And so Al, uh, ba, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar moved on. He was like, too much work. I don't have a fleet to get out there. When I get out there, how am I going to batter these walls? There's no way I can take this city. So he moved on. Now, after Ezekiel gave that prophecy in 600, about 265 or so, Alexander the Great comes on the scene. He marches. He's taken over the world. And he marches on Tyre. When he gets there, they had retreated to the island city. Nebuchadnezzar had left. Alexander the Great commanded his army to throw the bricks from the city into the water to make a causeway so that he could take this, the, the island. 
They ran out of bricks. They used every brick from the city. They literally scraped it clean, as Ezekiel had said. And then they cut down trees to finish the causeway, and he went out and took the city. That's a very specific prophecy. That, that is, doesn't just happen. How many times in history have cities been scraped down and thrown into the sea? The story is told, and whether or not this is a myth, we don't know. The story is told that when Alexander the Great left Tyre and went to Jerusalem, that the high priest met him in a white robe with all of the priests with him. And they brought Nebuchadnezzar into the temple, they brought Alexander the Great into the temple and they showed him the prophecy that he was going to destroy, that the city of Tyre was going to be cast into the sea and that Alexander the Great was so moved that he was found in scripture that he left Jerusalem alone and he went around it and Jerusalem was not destroyed or conquered by Alexander the Great. Now, that may be a myth. That may have never have happened, but it could have. And that's the amazing part. They could have brought Alexander the, the Great in. They could have showed him that he was in prophecy. That's the supernatural aspect of prophecy. This is something supernatural. This is God's calling card. God said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me who tells the end from the beginning and tells you things before they happen. So God has given us the supernatural so that we would go, what does God know? Like my prophecy, it came true. It, it, it make you stop and pause and think about me. But because God's done it, we're supposed to stop and think, what does God know then? And can I trust him? Is what he says true if what he said actually came to pass and can be tested? We know when Ezekiel was written, there's no question about it. He was a captive in Babylon when, when they took Israel. We know that. We know it wasn't written after it. And we know uh, Alexander the Great well. There's much written about him. And we know these two things took place. That's only a sample of prophecy that is amazing that came true in the Bible. Now, the Bible also foretold Jesus. And this is really important for us to understand. The New Testament is hyperlinked with the Old Testament through Jesus. Every prophecies about his birth, ministry, and death coming from the Old Testament, from all of the 39 books that are there, you find pieces that speak and move forward and reveal things that Jesus did so that he was foretold before he ever came. He was the promised one. In Genesis 22:18, God promised Abraham. This is 3,500 years ago. And in case you don't know, that's a long time ago. God chose a man from Ur of the Chaldees, which is Mesopotamia, and called him to go to Canaan and said, I'm going to raise up from you a nation. So Israel, the Jewish people, are the only people in the world that God chose to raise up for his people. And then he said, out of them is going to come one who's going to bless all nations. Now, when you think about this particular promise, there weren't that many people in the world in that day. But think about all the people that are in the world today and how every nation has been blessed by Christianity. Today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. And it is the most effective religion. And what I mean by effective is that there are more people reached, helped, cared for, loved by Christians than any other organization on the face of the earth. And that's the collective aspect of Christianity. 
All 2.3 billion Christians today, out of them are groups that reach out and help the world in ways that no one else does. It is unprecedented. Through Christ, every nation of the world has been blessed and salvation has been brought to every nation in the world. And it was foretold. And this is Genesis 22:18. In your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Galatians 3:16, Paul brings some clarity to it because the word seed there could be translated descendant singular or descendants plural. So was he saying in you, in in your seed Israel, all nations are going to be blessed or was he saying in your seed the Messiah, all nations are going to be blessed? So this is what Paul said in Galatians 3:16 to clarify that issue. By the way, Jewish people make up a very small part of our world. It's it's less than 20 million. When you, when, that's a small number. But we have had so many Jewish individuals who have blessed the world. So many who have done so many amazing things. And we could talk about that. So there is a way in which this would be true. That through Israel, all nations have been blessed. But was he talking about them or the Messiah? So Paul helps us in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to his seeds as of many but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So Paul says, this is not Israel blessing the world, but it is the Christ, the Messiah, who would come and who would bless all people. Now, there's a genre in movies called Savior, Savior it's a Savior genre. And they're very popular movies. The, a, a character is introduced a problem is introduced and he becomes the one who rescues them or saves them from their problem. They're some of the most popular movies that are out there. Christmas Time, Die Hard, uh, Bruce Willis, and I forget his name in it. He's, that's a savior story. There's a problem that's introduced. He ends up saving people in that show. It's very popular. It's a very common genre within movies. And as I said, they do very well. Some of them incorporate an idea that the Savior had been foretold somehow. And those do extremely well. I'll give you a couple of examples. In, 1960, in 1976, a movie was released called Star Wars. And it was a Savior movie. And it did very well. Luke Skywalker was the Savior who was going to save them from the great evil which turned out to be the empire and they introduced the idea that there were prophecies that were foretold in the beginning of the movie they did a good job is this the one he could be mm, he could be he, he could be <laughs> right so they did a great job of building it now what they did horribly was the end of the movie the way that luke skywalker saved the world is like what it's disconnected. They fell apart. They didn't know where to go with it. Once they had laid out this great idea that he was the one who had been promised, they just couldn't bring it to an end that would be as dramatic as what was in the beginning. Now there's another one that they did the same thing and it's a movie that did very well and that's Harry Potter. Harry Potter was a child that was immediately, his parents were immediately killed. He was tried to be killed. He had a mark on his forehead that was foretold. And he was promised that he was going to save them from a great evil. And that evil was the noseless Voldemort, right? And I know some of you guys don't like Harry Potter. I'm just telling you what this does. And, and it became, they made all these movies out of it. And they didn't end it well either. 
if you read through it, Harry Potter is a horcrux. That's the big thing reveal at the end. Sorry, spoiler alert, by the way. Harry Potter is a, a horcrux. And you say, what is a horcrux? You got to watch the movie or read the book to learn what that is. I'm not going to tell you. But they didn't know where to go with it. They had such a great beginning. They tried to kill this child at his birth. Where have we heard that before? Where we've seen that happen. And it was told that he was going to be the one who would rescue him from a great evil. And they said, here's the conversation in the beginning of the first movie. Is this the one? Could this be the one? This is the one that was prophesied. They did a great job in laying it out. Now, they didn't know where to go with the story. But we have the original Savior story. The original story that in which he was foretold. At which when he was born, the enemy tried to kill by, and killed all of the babies in Bethlehem. There was deaths that happened because they were trying to destroy him before he could even get going. The Old Testament had given hundreds of prophecies about what he was going to do and the kind of man that he was going to be and that he would save us from our sins. And, and that story ends well. That builds up. It's worthy of the promise of the one who will come and save mankind. That whole story goes well all the way through. The movie in the 60s on the life of Jesus got it right. The greatest story ever told. There's been no greater story than the story of Jesus. And it was foretold, which is amazing. Every aspect. Now let me give you some prophecies, just three quick prophecies that tell us what this Messiah would be like. It not only tells us the Messiah is going to be born and he's going to change things in the world, but it tells us what the Messiah will be like. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Of course, this is a prophecy from Zechariah about him riding into Jerusalem, hailed as king on a donkey. But he also says he has salvation. He's coming to Jerusalem to bring salvation, to die for us. The name Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua, and it means salvation. Salvation is bringing salvation. When, when uh, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, was converted, Jesus left the house and said, Today, salvation has come to this house. His name was Joshua, salvation. And salvation had come to that house. So the main thing that this promised one was going to do was be that Savior. Today, there is born to you in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And so in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, there's another passage that tells us what the Messiah will be like. And this passage has a backstory to it that we should talk about. When Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, he went to the city of Nazareth. This is the city that he, was, that, he, that he came to after spending his childhood in Egypt, probably Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a big Jewish community. He then went to Nazareth. When he went to Nazareth, he grew up there among them. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, only in his own home. And he couldn't do many miracles in Nazareth, not because... He, they, he tried and couldn't do it, but because they didn't ask him. They were like, this is Jesus. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. But this is, and they didn't believe he could do anything. So Jesus gets into Nazareth, goes to the synagogue, finds the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, finds what to us is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and reads it. Closes the scroll, puts it away, and goes and sits down. 
Now, synagogues were made for conversation. You sat in a synagogue. In their day, you sat in a circle. You didn't sit like we're doing today. You sat in a circle. And, and people would sometimes be three, four, five rows deep. But you would sit in a circle in a synagogue. And then there would be discussion that would take place among the people who were at the synagogue. So Jesus sits down. And the Bible says every eye in the place was on him. And then he said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. They began to cry blasphemy. They grabbed him from his seat and they drug him out into the streets and they were going to throw him over a cliff. But the Bible says he slipped between them. What would make them so angry that they would want to take one of their own when he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing and kill him? Listen to what he read. This is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Remember, Messiah means anointed one. And this is the quintessential Messiah passage. For Jesus to claim this passage is fulfilled in him is to say he is the Messiah. And they were like, no, the Messiah is not coming from Nazareth and it's not you. They were angry. They cried out that he had blasphemed. And it's, then it goes on. And here's what, here's what the Messiah is going to do. The Spirit of God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. One thing that Jesus did was preach to the poor. It's not that rich people can't be saved. It's just hard for rich people to get saved. Wealth gets in the way. Jesus said it's easier for a, rich, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And he said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So God does a work in your life if you are wealthy and you want to give your life to Christ. But the poor are more open to the gospel. If you want to be successful in work of the work of the gospel, then go to the poor. Because that's what Jesus did. He went to the poor. Every once in a while I have a friend who will tell me, yeah, something, something like this. I'm, uh, God called me to go to Silicon Valley and preach the gospel there because these, those rich people need the gospel as well. Well, what you don't realize, you may be ministering to rich people, but you don't realize how hard it's going to be to minister there. Go to the poor, and the gospel will be received in droves. Go to, go to those who are struggling. And Jesus preached to the poor. This is our wheelhouse, I call it. The poor is our wheelhouse. He goes on to say, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? The Bible foretold that the Messiah was going to heal the brokenhearted. Is there an empty seat next to you where someone you loved used to sit that you have lost and you're brokenhearted today on Christmas? He came to heal the brokenhearted. I love the verse that says, a broken reed, a, a, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flax he will not put out. That means when you're in the most difficult days of your life, like a reed broken and bent in the middle, like a, like a flame that's just about to go out, that he won't put you out. To proclaim liberty to the captives. For hundreds of years, for thousands of years, slavery was in the world. The days of Jesus, slavery was in the world. Only 200 years ago, it was accepted around the world. But there was a group, a movement, that called themselves abolitionists. And 99% of them were Christians who believed that it was wrong to own a person and who began to fight against it. And it was the abolition movement that put the death nail into slavery in Europe, in Britain and in Europe. It would 
to, to the shame of the United States, it would be almost 100 years later before we would have a civil war which would finally say, you can't own other people. And antebellum slavery was one of the most severe forms of slavery that there ever was. However, the Underground Railroad and the, 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 the key, the road to the north that could set slaves free was run by mostly Christians by abolitionists who wanted to see them set free, who rescued slaves on a regular basis. And finally, the battle was fought over and Jesus came to set ca uh, captives free. By the way, there's still slavery in the world today. Don't think it's been, been broken. There's a sexual slave trade for young girls, and again young boys, but mostly young girls, which is horrifying and shouldn't take place. And, and there's, there's problems that it's not being taken care of. There's a slave trade in Congo, in the Congo today, for the mining of cobalt, which we need for electric cars. So we want the, our road to go to electric cars, so they're mining cobalt in the Congo, and they have slaves that are doing it without the right equipment, without protection from cobalt, which is toxic as well, boys, girls, women, men that are in slavery today. He has come to proclaim, uh, to set captives free. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't just bring that up. I want to talk about it more in the future. And I, and I want to find out what's going on to help these slaves that are in the Congo. And I, 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 they're, they're trying to develop batteries that don't take cobalt and being very successful. Elon Musk, surprisingly, is developing batteries that don't take cobalt, which could, would be a great way to stop that from happening because you don't need it. We wouldn't need it anymore. But the more our world goes towards EV and pushes EV, the more they're making the situation in the Congo worse. All right, so I didn't just bring it up to bring it up. But um, my main point is he came to set the caps free <laughs> and to open the, for the prison those who are bound. A lot of people are imprisoned un unfairly to open those prisons and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Now, that's pretty amazing. Preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, set the captives free. That's the Messiah. That's who the Messiah would be. Now, Isaiah 53 is an amazing passage and it tells us really of the death of Christ, the way he died. As I read this passage foretelling the death of the Messiah, I want you to think about his arrest, his, his scourging, his carrying the cross to Calvary, his being crucified, and him hanging there for six hours before he finally died. And if you didn't know it, Isaiah 53 foretells those events. So does Psalms 22. This is foretelling in detail what happened to Jesus. And I want to start in verse 6 of Isaiah 53. Remember, we're looking at passages in the Old Testament that tell us things about this promised Messiah that's going to come and save all people. So Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's the first time it's said. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter. They're going to kill him. And as a sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison to judgment and declared, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He died. That's what, he died. That's what cut off from the land of the living would be. He was 
brutally killed and he was cut off from the land of the living. And for the third time, it says, uh, because he had done no violence, uh, um, but, excuse me, let me go back. And this is verse 9. And they, and they made his grave with the wicked. More evidence he died. He made his grave with the wicked, uh, but with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pre pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. All of that was foretold. And it pleased God the Father to bruise him. Why? Because of you. Because he's called you. It's unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he's called you. It's, uh, uh, he was born for all. There's not a person on the earth that he didn't come for and that he doesn't draw. He draws them. He calls them. He is calling you to be his disciple today. Every bit as much as when he walked by Peter, James, and John by the Sea of Galilee mending their nets and said, follow me. And it says they got up and left their nets behind and followed him. When you become a Christian, it's not just about raising your hand and praying a prayer and being born again and having your parking validated for heaven and now you're going to go on living your life. When you become a Christian, you become a disciple. You become his follower. You are following his teachings. He is your teacher. He is your God. You begin to do the things that he said. That's what Christianity is. If you become a Christian and then you live your own life as you had lived it, then there are problems. Let me read you quickly three Christmas prophecies that tell us that this promised one is God himself. If God's telling the future and we go, who is it? Well, Jesus, that little baby, was fully man and fully God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was God, John 1, 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. Here's three verses that tell us that foretold. These are not after. It wasn't that Jesus had this great marvelous ministry and Christianity came from it. It's that it was all foretold before and even who he was. Who was he? Well, he was God in the flesh. Let me read you Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, and we do call him Wonderful, Counselor, and we follow his advice on how to live our lives. He indeed is our Counselor, Mighty God. The child who is born to us, a child will be born, a, a son will be given, and he will be called Mighty God. That's in the Old Testament. That's not in the New Testament. That the Messiah would be God in the flesh. It goes on to say Everlasting Father. How can the child who is born be the Everlasting Father? Because the, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God are one. These three are one. One in essence, three in persons. We call that the Trinity. And so this son who was born is called Heavenly Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 7, 14, we have a very similar prophecy. You know this one. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, and we don't have any word like behold today. The Bible uses the word behold a lot. But if something amazing happens to you, what do you say before it? Do you go, behold? We don't do it, right? We say something like, you, you got to check this out, check this out. Right? That's, that's probably the closest we got to it. 
right? Check this out. This, you aren't going to believe this. Check the, uh, probably the closest we got. It's kind of sad, but there's a lot of beholds in the Bible. Behold. This is a real behold. A virgin shall conceive a bare son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. And in the New Testament we're told, which is translated, God with us. So the child who is born of the virgin is called God with us, which is supernatural. And some people say, well, supernatural things can't happen, so I don't believe in the virgin birth. But we have supernatural prophecies given in detail. So why couldn't God have a virgin bear a child by the Holy Spirit? And why couldn't God raise a man up from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection, though you and I knowing we will one day be resurrected? Let me give you one more. This is Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphras, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come a king, will come forth to me, the one to be ruler over Israel. Doesn't say king, all right? The one to be ruler over Israel, who's going forth is, uh, are from old, everlasting. The one born in Bethlehem, his days were from everlasting. He had already been existent. No wonder Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I am the one who was, who is, and is to come. The Almighty. He is, he is God in the flesh. Now I want to close with a, a, a passage from the end of the first sermon that was preached after the Holy Spirit was given. Really, it's an altar call. It's the first altar call that was given after the Holy Spirit had descended upon the church. It was only 53 days after the resurrection. It was 50 day, uh, 53 days after the crucifixion. And it was only 50 days after the resurrection. So all of these things are fresh. The disciples have seen him. 500 at a time had seen Christ. People are getting saved and fo becoming followers of Jesus in new and radical numbers within these 50 days. And he appeared to his brother James and he appeared uh, to Peter and he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And there's all of these accounts that are out there. People they trust and know that Jesus appeared to them and 500 at a time. So it's all very fresh. And now they're in the temple. And now the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Holy Spirit came on them. And it was chaotic. They began to speak in tongues. And they glorified God in other languages. It was real known languages. It wasn't a heavenly language. It was real known languages. And the people who were in the temple, there were thousands of them, heard the commotion, saw what was happening, and said, these guys are drunk. And Peter heard him saying, you guys are drunk. And Peter said, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Which is funny that that's his, his argument. We're not drunk, it's nine in the morning. You know? He says, but this is what the prophet Joel said. I will pour my spirit on all mankind. And then he began to preach the gospel to them. Gave them the prophecy, Isaiah 16, uh, Psalm 16.10, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. And then he ends this way. This is Acts 3, 18 and 21. And, and two times, he's going to mention as the Bible foretold. He's mentioning the prophecies about Jesus just like we have this morning. In Acts 3, 18 through 21, he says, But these things which God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now his appeal to them, Repent therefore and be converted. Repent means to change your mind. When you become a Christian, you decide, I am going to... Peter, James, and John 
When they got up and left the nets and followed Jesus, that was repentance. When you repent, you say, I am going to no longer live for myself. I'm now living for him. I am going to become a disciple of Jesus. I will be a follower of Christ. I will be one of his people. I will be filled with the Spirit. He will give me jobs to do. We are his workmanship created for good works in Christ. When you get saved, you don't just raise your hand and are born again. And now you're like, I got my validation for heaven taken care of. And you go on and live in your own life. If your life doesn't change, if you're not converted, if you're the same person after you are born again that you were before you're born again, then you have to reevaluate whether or not you were really born again. Because Jesus said, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to follow him. You have to be his disciple. You've got to learn the teachings of Jesus. You've got to learn the scriptures. You've got to learn the early creeds that the church believed, the things that were true that we take today as our statement of faith. You can go on our church website and you can read our statement of faith, which reaffirms the things that the very earliest creed said. And so be, repent and be converted. And there's some of you here today that have never given your life to Christ. And you might not understand what Billy Graham meant when he said, have you received Christ? You didn't understand it. What does it mean? It means to be a disciple. It means your whole life will change. Paul put it this way. For he said, it is no longer I. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. You give your life to him and you say, I'm no longer going to live for me. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to love him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. I'm going to learn what the Bible says. I'm going to be his disciple. I'm going to go on the missions that God has called me to as a believer. Because you are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ. But all of these things which God foretold from all of his prophets that Christ would suffer and be thus fulfilled repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out there it is he will forgive your sins and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord you may say well I'm a Christian and my sins have been blotted out but I haven't had times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord well I'm just going to say it again Are, have you really become a disciple are you truly a follower of Jesus that's what Christians are we, we can't make up a name for what Christians are. I'm a Christian because I go to church or I'm a Christian because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Well, Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead to be sure. You, if you deny that, you're not a Christian. But that's not all it is. It's following him. It's walking with him. It's loving him. It's knowing him. It's being obedient to him. It's being his disciple. He even said, pick up your cross and follow me, which means there's going to be sacrifices. When you give your life to Christ, there will be sacrifices that you will make. It will be difficult for you to be a Christian. It's not saying he's going to make your life better. It's saying that you're now going to live for him, no matter what it means, no matter what cost. You will live for him. And some have paid the ultimate price in following Jesus. He goes on to say, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, to whom must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. He's saying to these people, you haven't seen Jesus for a while because he ascended up into heaven. He had appeared within the last 50 days, but he's up in heaven now because heaven has to receive him. And then he says, which God has spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. And so I have a, a bit of a challenge for you here today. If you've never given your life to Christ, he's calling you. 
He died for all. The Bible says God commands men everywhere to repent. That's everyone who can hear this now online or here or on the radio. God is calling you to repent. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, he's saying to you, pick up your cross and follow me. Like he said to Peter, James, and John, follow me. He's saying, follow me. And when you follow him, you are now going to learn the Bible. You're going to learn the scriptures. You're going to learn what Jesus said, which are the greatest teachings that have ever been. And we're, the Old and the New Testament speaks of them. You're going to begin to be a light to the world, the salt of the earth. The, the, you get the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Your sins are blotted out, but you are now living for him. That's what's going to happen if you say today, I want you in my life. Now, some of you might say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm not doing that stuff. Then it's time for you to recommit. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying it's time for you to say, that's who I am. I'm not just going to be a Christian that believes Jesus rose from the dead and I'm living my life like I did the whole my whole life. There's no evidence in that. You, if you are a Christian, you will be changed. You will be converted. If you are not changed, where's the evidence? Where's the fruit that you've really become a Christian? And so some here need to say today, Lord, I'll follow you. I'm done living for myself and I'll now live for you. I became a Christian at 14, learned a lot, followed Jesus a lot, but still was living for myself a lot. It wasn't until I went through a shakeup in my life and at 19 years old, in, in, my, in my room, in my mom's trailer in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that I looked up at the ceiling and I said these words with conviction. Father, I'm done living for myself. I'm now going to live for you. And there was a transformation in my life. When I, when, I, when I suddenly came to the recognition, this isn't about having my fire insurance paid for hell. It's about me living for him. And what I'm asking you to do today is to say, Father, I am done. I am no longer going to live for myself, but I am going to live for you. And you will be filled with the spirit and your life will be transformed. And now you will discover what God wants for you. Billy Graham used to say, there's a God-shaped hole in every one of us and you will not be satisfied until he fills it. There's a God-shaped hole, but there is a God call on all of us. He's calling you to be his disciple and to live for him. And that's what Christianity is. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that we're able to look at this miraculous aspect of the scriptures that Jesus was foretold. We thank you for your love and your care in each one of our lives. And we pray that you would help us to be your followers. That Christianity is to be a follower of Christ. We are to be Christ-like and we can't do that if we don't learn about you and know you. That we are your disciples. We want to be those that you have called us to be. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.